at home. I left my love for my other love, the love that tells me to go. Traveling my whole life, going on the road, loving everywhere I go. Hello and welcome to the London Calling Podcast. My name is Ryan Price. This is the first episode in a series that will consist of interviews with a variety of Irish people based here in the UK in an attempt to give you, the listener, an insight into how the current generation of Irish people contribute to British society. Without further ado, I'll introduce the first guest. I consider myself very lucky to have arguably Ireland's most recognisable export to the UK as a first guest. His first job in the UK was in a pea canning factory in Cambridgeshire, and from that humble beginning, Bob Geldof went on to become the lead singer of 70s rock and roll group The Boomtown Rats, and later a world-renowned political activist, raising over £150 million for famine relief by hosting the biggest televised concert the world has ever seen, Live Aid. I spoke to Bob about his latest project, a film on the life and work of literary legend William Butler Yeats, a man who had his own trials and tribulations as an Irishman in Britain in the late 1800s. During the conversation, Bob related his own experiences to those of the fellow dub and offered his thoughts on the Ireland of today and the Ireland he'd like to see in the future. So Bob Geldof, welcome to the London Calling podcast. I have here in front of me your new film, A Fanatic Heart, Bob Geldof on WB Yeats. I watched the film last night and I thoroughly enjoyed it. What became apparent to me was, was how much you seemed to enjoy the making of it and delving into the life story of a man who you clearly have great admiration for. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't like doing telly. It's not natural to me. And, um, you know, it, it, when you write a, a song, you almost get an instant gratification. But when you do telly, uh, uh, it's always a personal argument I'm not David Attenborough, you know, unfortunately. And um, uh, when I did the Geldof in Africa series, it was for a purpose. I was doing an essay uh, to show people in the UK um, prior to the uh, the British GH in 2005 and prior to Live 8 that this continent was vital and viable, uh, contrary to what the papers were saying. So, again, there was a purpose. Uh, I did a two-part documentary on fathers for Channel 4, which, uh, again, was personal. I'd encountered a situation of great discrimination against uh, fathers and men in the course, and I didn't think that was right, and sort of being geeky, I joined the Cambridge University uh, Family Socio-Economic Unit or something and learned a lot and then set about making a documentary, but I think I'd missed it. I mean, I, I think I'd missed the target that I was trying to get. It was okay, but I think I missed the target. The same happened with Yates. I think I got to where I wanted to get to simply because when I began it, uh, I didn't quite know enough. I knew what my idea was going to be, but I didn't know. And as it sort of unraveled itself, as I read and traveled and filmed, you know, this guy just became a monstrous hero and genius, not just, of course, for Ireland, but we all know, you know, the poetry is for the ages and his genius is universal. But specifically, I think he is the central 
revolutionary character in the genesis of a modern Ireland, the central one. I think he is to Ireland what Shakespeare is to uh, to the English language and to Britain. Mm-hmm. And I think in the same way, for example, that so many of Shakespeare's phrases enter our common speech, the vernacular, so too, uh, so much of Yeats's language and words have entered the English vernacular worldwide. And of course, he's read everywhere and studied everywhere. But beyond that, from Ireland's point of view, for me, this is the man who actually invented and laid the foundational stones of uh, modern Ireland. Well, like you mentioned there, to this day, the work of Yeats and many other great Irish literary figures is still celebrated widely, both in London and around the world. Why do you think this is and what makes the work of somebody like Yeats stand the test of time? Well, genius will always do that, regardless of where you're from. But um, uh, I'm off to San Francisco to the film festival there next week. And, and, and yesterday I spoke to journalists from the San Francisco Chronicle and Examiner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they'd watched the films that were, were, were you know, ex- visibly excited by this. And they had no understanding that expressions like things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, a fanatic heart, uh, the foul rag and bone shop of the heart when you were old and tired and grey, um, you know, to hear lake water lapping, those sort of things, they didn't know actually came from one guy. Mm-hmm. They did, you know, they'd used them in their lives, but didn't know that they'd come out of a singular poem written by a singular person. And sort of, you know, so they immediately went off and discovered Yeats. Uh, so that was one thing. And not only in discovering Yeats, this clear Irish voice, but they didn't hear it as that. They heard it, they heard it as their own voice. Now, that's achieved by a, a, a vast intellect. But more importantly, in Yeats's case, he set out to write a poem, as he said, as simple as the dawn, so that the fishermen that he had in his mind when he was writing, the fisherman like in that cold grey Connemara dawn, that with the flick of his wrist, something as simple, as intuitive as that, as instinctive as the flick of his wrist that he observed, he wanted to write poems as instinctive, as intuitive as that, that that man could understand, or the beggar woman in the streets of Dublin, he said. And so he would pace up and down, people would hear him muttering to himself, or they'd be out for a walk in the woods and cool with them, and he'd suddenly just drift off you know, walking beside them, but muttering, muttering all to himself. And what he was hearing was this this roll of a sentence, and he was trying to reduce language, reduce, reduce, reduce it to its minimal. So it was utterly simple. And when he had that, then he'd write it. And of course, that's why it translates across the board, across all humanity, and why it particularly throbs in, a, in an Irish soul, because you hear Ireland. That's what you hear when you read Yeats. And that's what happened to me at 16. I heard uh, through uh, the English teacher who could read poetry, not just recite, but read it. And I, suddenly I heard this country that I lived in, which was not being translated to me through the television at that time. Suddenly this was part of a rock and roll culture. You know, I was interested in the Rolling Stones and the Who. Mm-hmm. I was listening to songs like Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys or A Whiter Shade of Pale by Proclaim. And their language was transcendent and psychedelic. And so, you know, when I heard uh, two poems, Milton's Paradise Lost, which again the priest explained was God and Lucifer, 
fighting about in heaven. And you know, this is what happened. And he read, he couldn't read poetry. And I was useless in school, but suddenly I was transfixed. And then we moved on to Yeats. And, uh, and here was, despite all the universalism that I was being engaged in, the, the universal world of rock and roll, Bob Dylan telling me to listen to Woody Guthrie, Mick Jagger telling me to listen to the blues man, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we were, in, you know, against this war in Vietnam. I was part of anti-apartheid. Uh, I was involved in this culture that the world was engaged in. And suddenly he was Yates, and he was speaking to me with a distinctive Irish voice. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, when I was 15 and 16, there was no one at home uh, to make me do my homework or to make tea or that, so I just stopped going home, and I'd go into the, the centre of Dublin. And I eventually linked up with the Simon community, a group who looked after the homeless. And there I met men who'd fallen out of the family in the pre-divorce days, taken to drink, lost their jobs and there's nowhere to go, and schizophrenic men and women, the bag ladies and bag men, and uh, prostitutes who were thin, ill-fed, impoverished young girls. And they were very interesting people. And I'd do a round with a flask of soup, and in one of, in a doorway, there lived uh, a woman called Mary, who I thought was ancient, but probably was 40. And, uh, you know, I said to her, look, Mary, we can, we can, we can, you can be housed. You know, lots of them wanted somewhere to live, but some chose not to be rehoused. Mary was one of those. And I said, why don't you want to go and live in somewhere, you know, cozy and comfortable, instead of living in somebody's doorway, you know, under some boxes? And she said to me this, she said, she never wanted to, hear the slap of a utility bill on the tiled hall floor. Mm. The slap of a utility bill on the tiled hall floor. Now that is a specifically Irish rhythm and use of language so that you hear a sound and you can visualize a clear image to hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore. Yes. To hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore. There's sound, there's image, it's universal understanding of what that man was looking at at that moment. And to hear Mary speak in the exact same language is to understand what language is and means to the Irish. It's a direct, emotive, visual, intellectual means of expression. It is not the utilitarian language of the British. Well, you mentioned that quote, to hear lake water lapping, and there's a scene in the film where you went to the scene where uh, Yeats wrote that poem and you did indeed uh, hear lake water lapping. It seemed like a very visceral process going to, you know, certain locations throughout the, the making of the film. And well, it's kind of naive because when you get to that bit, you know, I'm thrilled to actually hear that thing. <laughs> you can see me looking around and going, it is lapping. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, of course it is, you know, but, you know, I heard that sound in my head, as mm. he did, you know, um, you know, that day in, on the Strand in London when he's walking down a grey November street on the pavement and he stops to look in the window of one of the shops in London and he sees this window display of a fountain and he wants to go home, he wants to be in Sligo, you know, he's thrilled by the, the, the vast world that London 
is to him, the vast intellectual world uh, that's opened up to him, the, the, the endless argument, the, 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 uh, the weird spiritualism of the Golden Dawn, uh, all these people he's hanging with, George Bernard Shaw, William Morris, you know, mm -hmm. the, you know, this fulcrum of revolution, cultural revolution that's happening. You know, here you are at the center of global empire, the, the material world, the economic world, the military might. And he's reacting against all of that, as is Morris, as is Shaw, as are all these people. He's dead center in the middle of this. And he just wants to go home to be by the lake where he can be at peace. And so you have this, you know, in, in that one expression and, and where it strikes him, you know, this, this, this great poem of exile, which is why it's universal. You can be anybody away from home and read this poem. You don't absolutely have to be Irish. It is translated in Chinese. It is understood in Chinese, you know. I will arrive and go now, and I'll go to wherever it is. You know, I'm going to do that. And in my head, it's this. And that's where home is. And here's the language I view home in. You know, it is pure, unadulterated, intellectual, literary genius. And it is simple. And it's a ballad, it's a pop song, that's what it is, you know. Well, like you just said, when Yeats moved to London in the 1880s, like many a young Irishman then and since, he was both longing for success and then longing for Ireland. The longer you've spent away from home, do you, have you enhanced your interest in and your appreciation of Irish literature and the arts? No, no, that's not true. I always loved it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was always shocked by... Uh, why and how this country produces language that can be um, immediately transliterated into literature mm -hmm. or poetry or whatever. You know, it, it always strikes me as odd, and I've always sort of wondered why that is. And um, and I, I again root this back now into that fundamental time you, you specifically have mentioned, the late 18, uh, 19, uh, 1800s, coming into the 20th century. And uh, like in the film, I do not, I reject um, the uh, simplistic and naive notion that the foundational moment of the Irish modern state is uh, uh, the post office of 1916. I think that, as I say, clearly is the original sin of the modern Irish state. And uh, I think the foundational moment is the year zero, is the famine. Now, the famine is also a cliche, but, you know, I've lived and travelled and worked amongst famine. And when I was making this film, and I was in the West, uh, the ghosts of that great devastation swam around me. And you, you stare very silently at the point where these devastated people left uh, in defeat um, because everything had gone, all culture, all, all language, which is culture, of course, um, and, and their families had gone, their land, everything had gone. And, and, and I also thought then, which I'd not read about much, was the great movement out of the West into the cities of the north and east, into Dublin and Belfast. And, you know, and suddenly I imagined these tens of thousands of ravaged, ragged, impoverished people speaking this unknown language, 
coming into Dublin, which as the Victorian report of the 1900s said, was the worst slum in Europe, worse than Warsaw, they say, which up to then had been awful. Dublin was the worst slum. But you don't read much about this. And yet it was the women, um, specifically the Gorbuz, Maud Gaughan, Mark Vitti, Gorbuz, travelling around railing against urban poverty, which is very much a contemporary thing. Connolly was, yes, involved in it, but he was organising the, the labour people. And then you had that woman, Alice, from Belfast, doing her slideshows in a car, travelling around the, the, the towns of Ireland, showing people the urban poor and railing against it. So you had this other migration, this otherness, um, you know, this, this huge people on the move, which is what famine engenders, this discombobulation. And suddenly there's a state centre of the intellect, intellectuals who, who survived it probably because of where they were located, but also because of their own tribe. And, you know, the, the Protestant Anglo-Irish, so many of them had been killed as well. And, you know, out of it came this, this, this understanding, particularly through Yeats, that you are not a defeated people. You are not a lost, devastated people. Go back to before all that baleful history that they keep endlessly repeating of failure. Go back before that. Go, go pre-lapse areas. You are a Homeric people, at least. Your heroes are at least as great as the Greek legends, at least as great as the Arthurian heroes or the, the Wagnerian cycle heroes, at least as good as that. And you do have your own religion. I mean, you know, it's been diluted through Disney and Tinkerbell as fairy lore. But Yeats saw the, 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 you know, the fairy lore as being the pagan gods diminished. After the people at that time, and indeed if you look at the DVD of Edna O'Brien explains and Shane McGowan, still to this day is still incorporated into the culture of lots of that part of the country. And they picked up these stories, they wrote them down, they translated them into literature because they clearly understood that unless you knew who you were as a people, unless you understood what you were, where you'd come from, there could be no now that was unconfusing and if it was and there could be no future. But once you understood who you were and what you were, upon that you could build the constitutionalism, the law under which a society could build itself afresh. And that's what they set about doing, and that's what they actually achieved. So Yates said it would never be understood until 50 years after his death. 50 years, the year that he died, re-elected a woman as president mm. who was a human rights activist, a lawyer. And that's what Yates' vision of what Ireland was, clearly understood it to be a modern, contemporary, intellectual society. That's what that came into being. He was the one who saw that and wrote it and made sure it could happen. Well, to expand on that, another great quote of Yeats that you mention in the film is, there is no fine nationality without literature and no fine literature without nationality. Where does nationality come into play with regard to the work you've done in your career and the work that you continue to do today? I hate nationalism. I really loathe it. I'm deeply, deeply, deeply uncomfortable. I don't see any good coming out of it. Patriotism is uh, completely understandable and healthy. A sense of who you are amongst a, a group of, amongst a, a type of people and, a, and an understanding of, of the country from which you're from, the actual land from which you're from, a sense of belonging. Patriotism is that, but 
evil people, evil men and women, with uh, an unconvincing um, bent. Hurdle that natural, empathetic sense into a political philosophy. And that can be very, very, very dangerous. We've seen it in our time, in our own country, and we see it in Brexit Britain. Mm -hmm. I'm deeply, deeply uncomfortable with watching Johnson, Gold, Lee Smog, uh, these people. I'm deeply uncomfortable with what they're saying and what they're doing. And they revert to the language of the ideologue. They revert to elision and deception. And just last night live in Parliament. And this is what this leads to. And we have to be really, really, really careful because it leads to blood. I was out on the river and trying to stop Farage coming up the river uh, during the Brexit referendum. And Brendan Cox, my friend, had organised 12 boats to come with us. We had 12 from upriver, 12 from downriver. And Brendan was out on the river on his dinghy with me with his two little children, I think five and three. The next day, his wife was killed, mm. was killed by a far-right British nationalist, murdered. Somebody deluded into this great bloodlust, the vertigo of self-sacrifice, as Yates so brilliantly put it. And it, it is this stuff that's dredged up. It is the second coming that Yates, the most terrifying poem of the 20th century. He's writing about that, that great curdling of sense. And we have to be really, really, really careful, time and again. And so my film was to be a corrective against what I anticipated would be the awful North Korean-type kitsch that would, settle, that would revolve around the 100-year uh, anniversary of the 1916 rising, because the 50th anniversary was so awful for me. Mm. And I was 16 or 15. And I befriended a man who was, had been a killer in the north of Ireland, killing other Irish people. Let, let's remember this. Mm. And in, in, in 1966, when uh, we had a national station uh, broadcasting to the whole country, and Hugh Leonard, I think to his great shame, you know, a playwright of some substance, had written a soap opera about 1916, which was played out in RTE over the course of the week, the Easter week. And he came from a family in Mayo who were gripped by the narrative and the story. But it angered them and arose in them a primitive emotional response so that in the pub afterwards, the men were quiet with rage. And two, 18 months after this, he took off to them and became a murderer, a torturer, a brute. Mm. And he killed many, many people. And, uh, you know, he's could barely live with himself these days because he understood what had happened to him. And we need to be extremely careful. The imagery, the language, and the emotion that we conjure up like vomit when we deal with this awful subject. The great thing about Yates is that he was a revolutionary, that he was a nationalist to the end, that he was Irish to the core of his spine. But he was able to take this notion of what it is to be Irish 
and to show with a great sense of pride that we were of the world, that we were an intellectual people, that we had great and unique ideas, that we could use language perfectly to translate those ideas, and that we had something to say to the world, and we would say it. And he achieved that. Boy, that is something else. Mm. When you look at Ireland that we have today, a much more liberal Ireland with an upcoming referendum on abortion, what do you imagine Yates would make of what we've become? Well, he, 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 you know, Yates in his head was living in the Ireland that exists today. I am very comfortable in Ireland today, but I felt alien in Ireland when I lived there, when I was brought up there. I felt alien because, as I say, I was engaged in a rock and roll world of universalism of, of ideas about the Vietnam War, uh, uh, anti-apartheid in South Africa. I was engaged in the planet. And um, so suddenly this other Ireland comes into my ken uh, with uh, you know, the 50th anniversary, but Yates moves me back in the actual Ireland. And we know that once he set his cap to creating modernity, creating a national theatre, bringing in, um, you know, bringing in uh, foreign place so that Ireland could be exposed to another idea of, of how things work, bringing uh, a modern art for the first time to Ireland, constantly criticised, of course, bringing in Stravinsky's prima ballerina who came from Wexford, setting up a national ballet school, Yates, a national, a national theatre, a national art gallery, a national ballet school, national literature, and then sitting down in the Senate to help create laws in the new state and railing against what he saw was clearly a Catholic coup d'etat, a fundamentalist Catholic coup d'etat, while Archbishop McQuaid and Eamon de Valera sat in Blackrock College and worked out for themselves a constitution which was in fact a state church compact, which kept the Irish nation in bondage to a bizarre and perverse idea of social morality while chaining them to an economy that was based on some ludicrous romantic notion of an Ireland forever in a rural aspect of an economy based on some social realist super farmer. It was nonsense. And he railed against the censorship, which was part of the Catholic coup d'etat. He railed against the divorce laws, which are part of the Catholic coup d'etat, which they brought in. Now, we've got rid of that, but it kept all our geniuses out of the country making money, by the way, for other nations, not for ours, giving credit to other nations, and belittling us. We had no voice during this period of cultural claustrophobia until we broke out of it. And I would set that point at Mary Robinson's election. And since then, of course, we've had a great expulsion of air and a great breathing in of the world when we joined Europe, when we joined in this great idea of being part of this these other countries, but on equal basis, you know. So uh, the Ireland of today, he would totally understand, and as he said, it'll only be it'll only be understood in fifty years after I'm dead. He died thirty nine, eighty nine. We get New Ireland. So my, I would, I would vote for uh, repeal of the Eighth Amendment because that that would be me. But in this case. Yates would, I believe, also, he would be totally engaged in it, he would understand it. Don't forget, his, his, um, he was engaged in the modern. But in this debate, it isn't like equality of marriage. Equality of marriage is a no-brainer. Two people love each other. Who cares? If you want to get married, go. Who cares? Now, I was brought up in another time when that was considered weird. But now we consider it absolutely normal. Who cares if you want to get married? Go ahead. Great. 
This is different. This is not just religious, also secular people have misgivings. And they are um, an intrinsic, essential, um, emotional, um, instinctive. And you have to respect that. And you have to deal with it um, on a level of respect and, a, and, a, and an argument that is not intolerant. And that's the difference with this. And, you know, the more respectful we are of each other's point of view, I would hope that somebody who comes at it from a religious point of view or from it, a deep-felt, instinctive point of view can respect my point of view. Um, and like, and hopefully, too, the other side, uh, the side I would be on, can, can look at the argument in the same way. Uh, and, 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 that's, and, and I think Yates would be, you know, on, on this side of it, sort of the side I'm on, but also I think he would truly understand the other side as well. He'd have asked, you know, I don't have a vast uh, intellect, but this man could encompass mm. almost any point of view and argue, you know, either for or against it. But in this case, I think it's for it. Bob, thank you for your time as always, and thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And that is the first episode of the London Calling podcast. I want to thank Bob Geldof for sitting down to chat with me as the first guest of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Feel free to come back next week to meet another guest who will share with us their experiences of being an Irish man or woman here in the UK. Until then, take care.